Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak to Indidia KZOBE about her journey to becoming CEO of UK Youth and how her first year, coinciding as it has with the COVID-19 pandemic, has been. We also speak about the challenges facing young people in the UK today and what can be done to give young people the chance for a better life and in doing so, a better world for all. Indidia is a truly inspiring, knowledgeable and engaging person to speak with. I really enjoyed my chat with her and I'm sure you will too. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here is Indidia KZOBE speaking about becoming a CEO and solutions to the challenges facing today's youth. I'm delighted to be joined by Inda Diakese, OBE, Chief Executive Officer of UK Youth. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, Sam, I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm great. I'm really good. I'm so delighted to be speaking to you today. It's been, uh, you know, it's been really good of you. I know you must be so, so busy. You're CEO of UK Youth. You've been there close to a year. What a year. What what led you to get to that at this point? Um, so beginning of January will be a, made it a year. So it's it's I've crossed the year mark now, and I can tell you a bit more about the fact that I'm um I'm calling this my redo year <laughs> because right. last year was not the first year that I had in mind. Um, so um, yeah, I mean my background is um, predominantly in the kind of the formal education world. I've been I trained as a teacher and spent ten years as a classroom teacher and school leader through the Teach First program. So I was very focused on schools in the most kind of challenge, um, challenging communities in terms of resources. And after those 10 years, I actually went to work directly at the charity Teach First, where I was an executive director there for six years and, you know, responsible for regional operations and our alumni program and our youth access employability program, all sorts of really fun things over that time. And then after that, I felt like I wanted to experience the corporate world and the way that the kind of business world intersects with education. And so I went to work for Pearson, who own Edexcel. Um, and I was responsible for our digital and customer voice strategy there. Um, and then later was responsible for um, all of the secondary school portfolio in terms of the learning resources. Um, so that was that was the plan. And I was quite settled at Pearson, you know, really thinking, OK, this is a global role. It's given me an experience about exams and, you know, just another side of the the equation, I think, of, of what happens for young people. And I really, really randomly, although, you know, I don't believe in, in, in randomness, so I, I think I just... Um, just stumbled across the advert for UK Youth on Twitter, actually, um, and just really unexpectedly just clicked on the link and I saw a job that felt as if I had designed it, like on a vision oh, board. Wow. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, the rest is history. I just It was just not something I couldn't apply for, uh, although timing-wise, it probably wasn't, you know, the ideal timing in terms of what I'd said I was going to do, but it just wasn't the sort of thing I could could walk away from. And so you started back in January 2020. Yeah. And do you remember the first time you heard about coronavirus? Oh, Sam. Like, I think that the, the, the important context is to know that 
I um, I'm a real planner and a kind of I love research and preparation. But actually, with every job change that I've had, I've never really been able to prep for that role in the way that I've always dreamed. Like I'm a real kind of oh, in a dream world, I do this, I do that. I got to do that for this role. Like I was not, you know, not messing around. This was going to be, this is my dream job. I'm going to, you know, really take time out between Pearson and this. I, you know, literally, sadly Googled top books to read on like, you know, all the things as a first time CEO. Um, and I bought them and I read them um, and I, you know, um, devised my hundred day plan and, you know, all of these things. And it kicked off beautifully it was everything that I was hoping it was all going exactly to plan and I believe it I actually believe it was January it was like towards the end of January maybe early February that um that was the first time I kind of I think something shut down Hmm. or there was something there was just some kind of thing that occurred but even then I just thought oh this is a bit of a um as we all did I think just like oh this is a bit odd and then I think it was mid-February that we had an event and then the partner that we were working with sent us an email afterwards saying one of their staff has got coronavirus and they've now you know they've sent everyone home and they've locked down and then literally in that moment I was suddenly confronted with oh wait what (laughs) what's happening um and yeah I think from that moment on my beautifully devised plan was completely shelved never to be picked up again because I guess none of these books that you would have read will have had a chapter on what to do in the scenario of a pandemic, right? right? No, so many chapters, so many amazing chapters about all the things that could go wrong. When I tell you, I thought I was like prepared. I was so geeky, scenario planning, everything. No, there was no book. There was nothing that said, what do you do if you, even down to, you know, virus aside, even down to, you started building relationships with an organisation that, you know, you're going to take through a period of change because you're you're changing strategy and that you know you're you're putting your own stamp on things so you're building relationships with people and I had based that on face-to-face relationship building so like I was out and about my whole thing is like I met all my staff I you know I met partners so then you suddenly have to shift to virtual and so even like the dynamic of like how do you lead from a distance yeah how yeah. do you lead and, and build trust and buy in that, that that was a that was probably the first thing i had to confront because i suddenly was like you know, communicating to my you know whole staff via a video screen and they don't know you and you're mm-hmm. kind of saying go with me on this and all of those things it's, that was quite um, a, a bit of a leap i think And would you say the last year's been enjoyable? Has it been going into a CEO role? Had you had you thought this is you know what I want to do from the sounds of it? It was, but but looking back, has it been an enjoyable year? Has it been more a sense of achieving in a very difficult scenario? How would you classify it? It's such a good question. And I think I was asked this question so often last year, like in the middle of it. And I my answer then was. I need some distance from it. Like I need to be able to kind of get out of it and then reflect. And I kept on putting it off thinking, oh, you know, Christmas, like when I have a moment. And now that we're even on the other side of that, I I don't think my thoughts have developed that much, but I would definitely not say enjoyable. Um, I would definitely 
acknowledge that there was a moment there, probably late summer, early autumn, where I realized that um, it's going to sound so dramatic, but like I, I kind of had to grieve my first year, if that made sense. Sure. Like I'm like I I had such a vision for it. So it was just it was not that. And so there was a there was a moment of loss where I had to just accept. No, actually, this is your story. This is your first year. In your first year, you've had to make staff redundant. You've had to engage with young people, um, you know, in, in, uh, facing the most horrific realities and scenarios. You know, you've, you've had to do things that no one would, would want to. And you're not alone. There's almost like a collective magnitude of challenge. Um, not to talk of all of the you know, the racial um, conversations and the weight yeah. of that. And it was, it was overwhelming feels like such a trite word, but that's my reflection on it. It was a year that I think has carved itself into my psyche in a way that I probably will take a while to understand, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's, there's a level of trauma I guess it, it's all it's all relative, isn't it? And I, I you know, obviously, um, you know, different people have got different levels of trauma. Some people have lost people, other people have lost jobs, and other people are just kind of worrying about those things happening. But I suppose on all those fronts, everybody's got a, a level of underlying stress and anxiety to every day at the moment. And I, I guess when you're in a in a leadership role as you are, and and having I suppose, a, almost a, a feeling of kind of a caretaker of, of those people working with you, um, that must be magnified. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And, and I think the, the added kind of um, um, painful twist is that recognising how challenging those decisions and contexts would be anyway, you've got this added pressure of worrying that it's because you're a first-time CEO that maybe others would have figured out a better way of doing it. And, you know, people would have had just a better experience. And so the 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 responsibility of recognizing that like other people are quote unquote paying for your learning curve sure. and like I that that's that was the thing that I would say haunted me the most that um you know I, I used to think this back at school and I I really it, it became problematic because I probably took it too far but I would always think you know as I'm learning to be a teacher and understanding all of those things, you know, my students, they're never going to have year nine again. They're never going to have year 11 again. So it's all well and good for me to kind of be figuring things out. But like, this is a really important year for them. And so I think there's a similar responsibility that I think I carried, um, which was, I have to get this right. Because so many other people, this is, you know, this is, this is their, their lives, you know, we're talking about. So yeah, that weighed a lot on me, I think. Do you think coming in as a new CEO also left you open to the changes required with the pandemic? Do you think in some ways it qualified you or it gave you some kind of advantage potentially to move with the, the times a little bit more quickly? Yeah, I love that. And I, I actually heard that quite a few times last year when, um you know, even when this question came up and I, you know, I was reflecting on this and I think, um, you know, there is definitely something, there is a bullishness that comes with naivety so that you don't have to carry the weight of, I've tried that millions of times, it's never going to work. So I learned kind of, um, oh, we don't do it that way 
in the middle of doing it <laughs> right because yeah. for me it was well why wouldn't you so I, I didn't realize this was unusual because you know collaboration working with people outside of our bubble in terms of the sector or that was just instinctive to me and so I think there is something about well you know even going virtual yes building relationships but it never occurred to me that we couldn't still deliver the services that we needed to do because sure. I'm not bought into the exact way we've done it for you know years to come so I definitely think there's part of that I think there's part of that that's my character anyway um which I think was a definite pillar through all of this as well um and I'm a very of course it can get better of course change is possible person there was never a point where I thought oh we're gonna stay in this state of confusion or pain or whatever i i've always hold on to the oh, okay tomorrow's a new day it's just like how how can you just keep going <laughs> that's the that's the question not can you keep going what what is it do you think that kind of helps you to keep going have you, have you got any secrets any practices that you do to kind of keep resilient in these in these difficult times as a ceo yeah i mean honestly i really believe and understand that um my faith is a really clear anchor for me on that I am um there's a there's a definite sense for me that you know the bible says that you know your steps are ordered and things like that where I feel like wherever I am there's a reason I'm there and I'm and there's a responsibility I have to leave that place better than when I arrived and there's also a confidence that you know, my faith gives me that is that I'm not alone. Like I can, I can lean on whether the physical people around, like maybe my job is to recognize where support and help is going to come from. Never the idea that it doesn't exist. Um, And then the other thing for me that I think really does ground, even the reason I work in this, you know, with young people is that there is this sense of, the reality that we all live in, the society that we all live in is determined by people and their decisions. And so if we can make better collective decisions, we can create a better world. I don't think that's naive. I honestly believe that everything that we take as given, someone has, someone's decided that that's the way it's going to be. And nothing demonstrates that more than 2020. All of the things that were um, sacred cows, all the things that we thought, oh, there's no way. Look, <laughs> look how quickly we suddenly realised that, oh, actually, most more things are, are manual than we, than we imagined. And so because of that, there is this sense where I just feel as if in the same way that I benefit from what my um, my you know, predecessors and, and, and generations before me have done, like I literally benefit from their blood, sweat, stubborn determinism and, and hope and confidence in, in my race, in my gender, in my you know immigration status, whatever it might be. I really carry that accountability to do that for generations coming behind me. We've seen a lot in the news about the recent challenges that young people are facing. There's obviously coronavirus, there's the lockdowns, there's the closed schools, GCSE and A-level blunders, and the campaigning of Marcus Rashford, which is a positive thing, over uh, free school meals. What impact is all of this having on young people that 
the UK youth are working with? Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is the most sobering, scary parts of all of this. I think that the reality of the impact and the answer to your question, I still think is unfolding. And what we know now is already terrifying, right? So if you look at, you know, the reports that we've done, you know, where we we can see that um, there are services, youth organisations, um, youth clubs who are reporting that they are working with significantly, I think it's like 65% of a, um, a recent survey that we did a, a couple of, in November, um, we surveyed 1800 youth organisations and 65% of them said they were working with fewer people as a result of um, COVID. And what that actually means is that young people have like gone un, uh, you know, gone into the shadows as it were, they're not mm. reaching young people. And this, this is not work that was nice to have. This was really important work. And then you look at reports from Young Minds that the impact on mental health. And I think their latest report said like 80% of young people with a history of mental health needs have said that the pandemic has made that worse. The Prince's Trust just released their survey and um, honestly, just the most hair-raising results of, I think one of the the headlines, I think The Guardian captured it as, was like, young people are in danger of giving up on their futures and on themselves, with like a quarter saying they feel unable to cope with life, right? And it's when we hear those words and then we, you know, juxtapose that against the things that happen with with the schooling and like you know um services and charity services like losing money and going under and all of those things the reality of what those findings mean for young people i think is is something we should all be really really concerned about and for me the the question is it's not even about what's happening now, but it's about what's 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 going to come on the other side of that, right? What what is those feelings, that narrative that young people have in their head? What is that going to lead to? Because I think we are trying to address the problems that we can see at surface level right mm. now, and I'm just conscious of like you know the iceberg kind of analogy of like what's happening underneath. And I think even when I think it was the first or second lockdown and when, when we came out of that, you know, police recorded an increase in violence and an increase in crime and um, in grooming and online safety and all of these things and county okay. lines. And it, it occurred to me that we should have seen that coming, right? Like when we were in lockdown, it, it feels like everything that comes out, it's like we're surprised. And that makes me worry that, are we focusing our time on the things that are happening now or the things that we can predict and imagine are coming down the line? Does that make sense? Like it just feels slightly reactive. um, And the consequence of that, I think we should all be really, really concerned about. to be more stories um, increasing numbers of stories about youth and the impacts on youth of the coronavirus and obviously there was all this Marcus Rashford stuff which was fantastic and then the you know the other side of it which are kind of the government's response to it and uh, I suppose that is it is that potentially an opportunity to kind of develop more support for UK youth but then on the other hand I suppose you're then having to do much more work as an organization presumably with less money coming in in certainly last year yeah I think it's a really great point I think 
that's what I mean. Like there is there it sounds so odd to frame it this way, but there are there are silver linings, you know, there are opportunities that, that have come out of COVID and that year especially, because I think collaboration is at an all-time high. And I think that whereas for teachers, youth workers, health workers, some of these things that are coming up about young people are not news to us, right? Like we know these are the things that we've been dealing with. This is the reality of what it means to to work with young people. But almost for Joe Public, for like the general, you know, even the media in general, some of these stories, there's almost a bit of a <gasps> kind of element to it, like a bit of a shock revolution and revelation. The yeah, digital yeah. one, I think, is fascinating. The idea that it suddenly occurred to people that not all young people have access to laptops and to broadband and to what <laughs> like what what you know and fair enough, to be fair and you know people always challenge me about this but to be fair maybe for most people you just wouldn't have to think about that right but that there in itself lies a problem because um you know people who work with young people know that you've got a family with multiple generations of young people um in a in a two three bedroom house where do you want all those children to learn? What's the equipment? What the hell does that do to data and broadband? It's just things that aren't a surprise, but because they're surfacing, exactly as you said, you've suddenly now got, you know, that amazing campaign that um, I think Oak National are, are, are leading this idea of, you know, getting broadband companies to make that free or like, you know, give access and, and create some kind of equity around that. You've got conversations happening that I just don't think would have happened without this kind of stimulus, as it were, of COVID forcing them to. So absolutely. And then the other thing, which is also something that I, I, I know we want to talk about, but the other thing that's come out is this idea of cross-sector collaboration as well. Because, you know, when schools shut down, it, the conversation seemed to solely be about schools as a, a building, but, you know, schooling, learning continued. And, you know, all teachers will want you to know that, that like the building may be shut, but like they have, they are still working, trying to figure it out. But young people are far more diverse than just one sector. And so how do those two bodies work together how do they make sure that they are aligning on their solutions to ensure that each young person kind of has what they need so there that collaboration piece i think is definitely another positive that has come out of last year as well so what do we mean by formal and non-formal education in the context of young people so this was one of the single biggest aha moments for me coming into this job. Um, I applied for this job. I started this job thinking I was coming off the back of 20 years experience in the sector, as it were. And it wasn't until I started the job that I realised I was seen as an outsider. <laughs> but like, I'm not, I'm new to the youth sector. And it took me a while to realise what people were talking about, because what I, I'm not I'm not uh you know out of university I've been I've been working a while and what clearly became obvious was the professionals that work in in, in both and and people more broadly understand school differently to outside of school <laughs> and so formal education is what happens in school 
your curriculum, GCSEs, learning, all of those things, that is there. And then everything else is, you know, non-formal. It's not even always described as that, not always described as education, not always described as learning. The, you know, those of us that are of, of age will will remember the kind of biker's grove oh, yeah. <laughs> analogy, right? <laughs> like there, there's a lot of people who still think that's what youth work is. Right. And so because I was coming from that world, I was able to kind of translate the, you know, the perceptions or misconceptions in a way that I hadn't realized I would have to do. And for me, the single biggest issue is that it's the same young person. And when I was a teacher, and it's still the case now, one of the biggest issues that the um, teaching profession faces is teacher workload. Teachers are burning out. Teachers are being asked to do any and everything. Mm. You know, teachers are leaving the profession because it's too much. And part of what makes it too much is that any social issue that comes up, think about it. The first thing that happens is schools should. Why aren't schools the... You know, why aren't, what? When I trained to be a teacher, I didn't realize that I would have to be all these other things as well. And that served me really well. But there were lots of colleagues who were like, I just want to teach science. I just want to, you know, I really <laughs> love my my subject. I don't want to be a social worker. I don't want to, you know. And what I had not appreciated in all of those years working in school was that there was this, fountain of expertise that I could have been working with Mm. there were professionals who understood young people from a lens that I didn't have the the capacity the time or the the you know the lack of other pressures to support in a particular way and my goodness it would have been amazing if I could have collaborated with them more rather than recognizing, look, my kids need this. So I'm going to have to figure out a way of doing this because that's my responsibility for my students. So yeah, I think there is just this idea that there's a line that's drawn and like, this is where all the academic and kind of qualification side of things happen and any and everything else happens over there and it's ridiculous because young people can't be split up like that so what kind of things are what fall into that informal category and is it is it kind of community groups and churches church groups and and various things like that mentoring and exactly all of the above so I would say that um you know youth work in of itself is a a practice with clear disciplines it's it's actually you know it's a it's a profession there are there's there are theoretical principles on which things are based on and it's really about supporting young people to discover themselves really focuses on kind of personal social development this idea of kind of you know really understanding skill development um but all in service of, I think, helping young people understand themselves Mm. and understand how to navigate the world based on your understanding of yourself. And so you use things like clubs and programs, whether they be um, programs based on skills or activities, you know, there, there are things like mentoring, you know, there are things, we do programs that are based on internet safety, digital skills, you know, all the way through to self-empowerment, um, um, social action, like all the sorts of things you can imagine. But the, really, they are tools. It, it's not 
the 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 purpose is not just to teach the young person about digital safety right, right. it's right. about in that in that activity helping that young person understand themselves better understand the way they see the world better and understand how to navigate the world when problems arise things that i just think are essential and most of us have to just kind of figure that stuff out and I think there are so many young people that if they had access to that kind of support would make things like even school much easier because it, it's a it's yeah like how often do we all you know all that self-development stuff that we suddenly all start doing once we start working like, wouldn't it be great if you were able to do that from from a you know from a from a very young age and you were able to understand your own agency and understand your voice and all of these things that I think really do end up shaping who you are, perhaps much more than like a qualification might in a particular um, subject. So yeah, I think that that's the opportunity there, but it's not the activity; it's the it's the development that the activity is 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 um, fostering. We we know well. We don't know, I guess, where we are in terms of the uh, the pandemic at the moment. There's talk of vaccines. We're recording this in January, and and the hope is uh, we've got a new president of the United States. The hope is that the world is going to get a bit better. But what what are your hopes for? I guess the young people in in the UK. Uh, do you do you hope that we're going to be kind of moving more quickly towards some kind of equality or ability to help young people in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I I have to hold on to that hope. I really believe that not only are the the diversity of needs that different young people have, not only are they being, I think, illuminated much more. My hope is that we don't lose sight of that. There have been some really powerful conversations about race and about um, identity and equality and equality of access to certain things and all sorts of things that really just understand that that we do not live on an equal playing field and not just that that's the end of the sentence but the consequence of that for young people when things like a global pandemic strike so my hope is that we continue to lean into the hard work of understanding what we need to do as a society to change that going back to what I said earlier about the fact that I do believe it's changeable with enough will and so that there is a hope there that that we continue to work hard on this idea that not all young people are equal so how do we ensure that each young person has what they need the other hope I think is again in this period I think we've heard from young people more than we're probably used to and I really my hope is that we don't retreat from that you know we we work with so many corporates and partners and trusts who are you know very interested in getting young people's voice and you know obviously zoom and the technology allows that so much more lockdown has allowed that so much more the logistics of are not as in a way as they might be in other instances and every single time it happens that young person's reflection, contribution, insight is always the highlight of the session, right? And so there's something there about how do you hold on to that? How do you make sure that you actually can start giving space to young people to have ownership of the decisions, or at least input, for goodness sake, shared ownership of the decisions that ultimately affect them? 
I think it is outrageous that we are making decisions, that decisions that affect young people can be made without a single young person being involved, consulted, engaged. And actually we've stepped so much further away from that being acceptable over the last year. So my hope is that that just becomes part of our fabric as a society, that we recognise that you don't need to have all these siloed conversations. We can have, you know, all these different generations, all these different views gathered together around an issue and really in- ensuring that that issue serves all of the people that are that are required. My hope is those things. And I fundamentally believe that it, they are possible and that Really, the ideal would be that we look back on 2020 at some point and we feel a sense of pride that we didn't allow the loss and the pain and the challenge to go to waste, right? That we, we've we moved forward as a society, never, it will never justify all that we've lost and the, the lives and the opportunities that people have lost, but at the very least, let us be able to look back and say, my goodness, there was a step change as a consequence of that. And, and we evolved as a society. Are there any other countries out there that we could look at as a better model for how to treat our youth? Yeah, that's such a good question, actually. Um, I definitely would want to know that. I think there are probably less countries, but there are more examples like I kind of call them proof points or you know points of light Mm. that I think that we we can appreciate are not one-offs right and so there are examples you know here and all you know abroad I'm sure where people have gone beyond tokenism of even which I still think is fine there's a first step of kind of like let's open up the door let's have young people sit and involved to really sharing decision making the thing that actually comes to mind for me is um an organization called teach for india that is principally designed on this idea of student leadership being an equal partner to any and everything else so yeah. if you if you cut that organization down the middle you will see students being part of the decision making the all of the work that's done student voice is not an add-on it's built into the design of the very way that that organization operates and i think they've always been leaps ahead of um so many people in that way um but where it came from is that it was a principle it was a principal tenant on which any and everything else was built So it wasn't added in after the fact. It was, this is how we are. And the results are unarguable, right? Like there's no, when you hear these young people, when you see the progress, when you see the community impact, it's just, you kind of salivate as to why aren't we all doing this? And I think that for me is probably the bigger question. There are examples out there, but why are the examples not enough to trigger changes in behavior? And I think that's what COVID has been. It's been the biggest trigger we hopefully will ever need to have. So how are we going to maximise on that? That's the question. Indidia KZOBE, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. It's been a real pleasure to chat.
Big thank you there to Ndidia Kesey, OBE, for sparing the time to chat with us here at Charity Chat. There were so many quotes and ideas that Ndidia expressed, and I, for one, will certainly go back and listen to this episode a fair few more times. The notion of making better collective decisions and in doing so creating a better world really should resonate with all of us working in or supporting the charity sector. I'm sure it does. Though our intentions may be noble, decisions need to be made on the basis of involving those who we're seeking to support. Otherwise, we risk doing more harm than good. At this particular difficult time and changing time, we've both the challenge and the opportunity to rethink our individual approaches and the norms, practices and attitudes of the organisations we support with our time and our money. Clearly, the crisis that is currently affecting our communities and our youth have been raging for much longer than the COVID-19 pandemic. For those lucky few of us who are just experiencing this rehearsal for a dystopian future, let the anxious baseline that accompanies our thoughts be the rhythm that moves us to do all that we can to help those who need it most. Let's think back to our childhoods and what may have been we may have taken for granted as so many children do now think about the world that we want for our children can it exist without equality and equity and what can we do to help shape that for the youth today who are the leaders of tomorrow how can we each contribute to the better collective decisions that can make a better world one place to start is to get involved, not only in the work of the charities and causes that we're already supporting, but also looking at how we can make positive differences to those around us. And with the incredible technology we have at our disposal, these opportunities are in abundance. If you've something to say or some energy and intention to add to the conversations which may help to form some of the collective decisions that the sector and society will need to make, please do start with Charity Chat and get in touch with us through our website or social media presence. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. It is both gratifying and empowering for all of us at Charity Chat, just we happy few of volunteers, um, to see so many of you listening and getting in touch with us. We, we really love to hear from you, so please keep doing so. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout the show and who are playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Cheerio. Bye bye.